0: Welcome to Rex Factor! This time, the Seven Kings of Rome with the Partial Historians. With your hosts,
1: Graham Duke
0: and Ali Hook.
1: Hello! Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. But today we are not reviewing a consort, but instead are interviewing the partial historians, Dr Fiona Radford and Dr Peter Greenfield. Uh, They do a podcast about ancient Rome, but particularly interesting for us, they have a book out about the seven kings of Rome, which is called, appropriately for us, Rex. So this is before the emperors, it's before the republic, it's the start of Rome. Uh, and when they had kings so we're going to chat to them about about their book and about the seven kings of rome now before we get into uh, the interview also just to say uh, which you may have heard from our previous episode but rex factor is going to be doing a live show at ludlow fringe on the 17th of june uh seven o'clock at the ludlow assembly rooms rex actor six wives of henry VIII. so we will be asking the audience to pick who is the best of the six wives so saturday 17th of june ludlow assembly rooms we've got the links on our social media on our wordpress site um and also if you just google rex ludlow festival it should come up so if you're able to come along on the 17th of june please do book your tickets come and see us live So, we are very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by the partial historians. Now, in my notes, I was just going with uh, Dr. G and Dr. Rad, but I don't know if a a more formal introduction is more appropriate or if you prefer.
2: Uh, That's that's usually the the names we roll with. (laughs) Completely
3: appropriate and acceptable. So, for, uh, for the
1: listeners, and confused as to why I'm <laughs> confusing them about your names, could you just uh, introduce yourselves in terms of uh, who you are and what you do?
2: Absolutely. So, Dr G and I, for about the past 10 years now, it's actually our 10-year anniversary this year, have been doing Thank you very so much. We have been doing a podcast on ancient Rome, and for the past about eight years, we've been tracing the narrative story of Rome from the founding of the city.
3: Mm, this is an epic project, and despite the fact that Rome arguably lasts for thousands of years, depending on who you talk to and what the end date is, we are still very close to the beginning.
0: <laughs> 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 how, how,
3: where are you up to? 420-ish B.C.E. Wow.
2: <laughs> we have not made it very far. No, we, we've knocked over, uh, you know, a few centuries, but considering that we've been doing it for 10 years, it's perhaps not the fastest progress you've ever seen. <laughs> That's a, it's like real time. Is this a diary? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. By the time we get to the end, we
3: expect to be in our hundreds ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a
1: project. Nice one. Now, Ali was curious as to uh, the meaning of partial historians.
2: Ah, it actually comes from one of your country women. We, Our name is inspired by Jane Austen because, as you probably know, she wrote A History of England by a partial, prejudiced and ignorant historian. And we took that s- subtitle, I suppose you might call it, and we turned it into The Partial Historians because we feel that we are partial in the way that we perhaps report our history, (laughs) but Uh, also acknowledging our own unique perspective (laughs) on events. We have a partiality
3: for ancient Rome. We do. uh, So that's part of where we come in. But yes, the Jane Austen factor is there for us as well. So maybe one day we'll do a crossover.
0: Oh, good idea. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, yeah, some sort of Very Channel 5 Jane Austen Investigates sent back into ancient Rome. (laughs) (laughs) That is a pitch that will work.
2: Yeah, I'd love to see what she would make of the (laughs) Julio-Claudians. Taking her
3: sarcasm and putting it in the ancient world would be amazing.
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Tiberius would definitely be the Mr. Darcy of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. (laughs) Um,
3: I don't think
0: so. Uh,
2: I think so. (laughs) Taciturn, moody, proud... (laughs) Who's got legs <laughs> exactly
0: yeah well, who is it we did we touched on um
1: we did a special thing. episode on sulla oh yeah. what a
0: guy so wow 20,
1: a way off in- from uh, your perspective yeah obviously
3: yeah it'll take Indeed. us a really long time to get there but infamous you know his reputation definitely precedes him
1: he was uh, he was just such a pickle whereby he'd one moment he's dressing up in drag and you know being lovely with all his actor chums. The next minute, he's just massacring the <laughs> entire just, towns. It's,
3: just so it's that versatility to Roman masculinity that we all enjoy. <laughs> yeah.
1: In touch with the feminine side, but also still in touch with the toxic masculinity side. <laughs> yeah.
3: They yeah, can do absolutely.
1: both. It's, yeah. yeah. So, we are very interested to talk to you uh, today about a new book, which you uh, have written. Is that is that for the tenth anniversary, or is it just sort of coincidence that that's like come out this year in the the big year for you?
2: I think we actually have COVID to thank for the fact that it's timed (laughs) with our anniversary. The book was actually meant to be done a little while ago, but the COVID pandemic kept on piling work onto my plate in particular, which meant that I had to keep delaying doing my part. And Dr. G has been very patient. So, but it's actually worked out well, I think, that it came out for our 10 year anniversary. And when we thought about it, we were like, oh my God, this is such a perfect crossover for you guys and, <laughs> and us, given our title.
1: Well, yes, though, so the title, which yeah.
2: it is Rex, the Seven Kings of Rome.
0: Seven, hang on, seven kings, what's going on there? They don't have kings, do they?
2: They oh. did. And that's, that's kind of what our <laughs> book is all about. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the
3: undersung part of Roman history. Yeah.
2: yeah,
0: I've got. I just want to be sure that you know you're saying kings, not empress because I've got to be honest, <laughs> you, might have, you might have fallen into a giant bear trap straight away. That would be awkward.
3: <laughs> Six months after publication, yeah. guys, we made a terrible, terrible
0: mistake. Either <laughs> that, the other option is what? They had kings,
3: seven of them at least, arguably more. But so in Roman history, the first period is not the Republic. There is a period before the Republic starts, and it is the period of the kings. And they last for about 250 years, according to Roman understanding.
1: You see, this this episode is going to be really good for answering your question because that's literally what we're going to be talking about.
0: Hang <laughs> <laughs> before well, we get to the podcast, I've
1: got to deal with these kings' business because I don't know what is going on here. I want to know all about them.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm going to enjoy this. Then carry on. Well,
1: so it, I mean, it is really is going. We're, you're talking about how long it's taking to go right from the beginning to well. To wherever we get to, or wherever we get to. But I mean, this, for the understanding where the kings come from, it really is going right back to the foundation of Rome, isn't it? So this is Romulus as our first king. So I guess what is the story? How do we get to Rome and having a king? What happens?
3: Yeah, this is, it's a long story because controversially, we're not, we can't be sure that the kings were real people. So, that's the first issue that we have. Particularly at the beginning.
2: Particularly at the beginning. Particularly at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So,
3: we've got the archaeological record, which suggests that the site where the city of Rome is now has been inhabited since at least the sort of, like, 1000s BC. So, there's been people living there for a long time, living in huts, doing their thing. And at some point, the Romans understand themselves as having a foundation moment. And they decide eventually, in the way that they talk about it, that that foundation moment is the 21st of April, 753 BC.
2: They've really nailed it down with the specifics, you know, the 21st of April. Yeah, they locked it into the calendar.
3: It's a very specific date, a very specific year, and it's founded by a guy called Romulus.
1: Is there a reason why it's so specific, the date? Like, is there something about that date later on they thought this is when we want it to be? Or was it maybe literally just that we wrote it down? It was definitely that day.
3: They have (laughs) arguments about the date and they spend a lot of time doing calculations. So there are different theories for the date. And this is the one that ends up being the most popular and the one that lives on in the historical record. But they have some variations on this. Like maybe it was 782. Maybe it was 746. Maybe it was 812. They've got a lot of options, but this is the one that they really settle on. And what ends up happening is that they end up having a festival to celebrate the birth of Rome on the 21st of April each year. So it becomes a logical sort of crossover to match up that date with a year of some kind.
2: And I believe if you go to Rome these days, you can still encounter these celebrations. They
3: do do a really big celebration for Rome's birthday on the 21st of April, so it's definitely an amazing time to go to the city. They do parades, they dress up in ancient dress, and they do a whole
0: festival. Oh, that sounds amazing.
1: Well, so before we get to the celebrations of it, how do we actually get Rome founded? Because I guess, well, there's, there's a classic legend that some people might have heard, and then there's... Another one which um, is where Ali Scandalbell might need to... Oh,
2: yes. Get ready with that Scandalbell. This is the Romans we're talking about. Mm
1: -hmm. So, what's the classic version (laughs) of Romulus' story?
3: Oh, the classic version of Romulus' story is that he and his twin brother Remus grow up together as being related to the king of Alba, which is sort of a little bit to the south. And these twins end up... Having to move away, they decide they're going to leave that city and strike out on their own. And they go to the location that will become Rome and they sit down on separate hills and they're looking for signs from the gods of where is a good place to found the city itself. Remus sees six vultures flying in the air, glorious stuff, and he's like, it's a sign. He runs over to Romulus and he's like, I've seen it. We have to, we have to do it over on that hill over there. It's going to be great. Romulus turns around and then just bald-faced lies to his brother. He's like, well, I just saw six vultures while you were on your way over from that hill to this hill. So clearly this is the spot to do it. Remus does not believe this lie. And they fight. Romulus kills his brother. He wins. And then he founds the city on the hill where he lied about it.
0: So he's the bad one. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a city what? founded on fratricide and lies. <laughs> <laughs> could they
0: could make the, they could have made the goodie win? Why do they? What, why have they decided to found it on a bad guy?
2: This is one of the interesting questions. Yeah, it's weird that the Romans tell this story about themselves. Yeah, huh. just
0: I think that's what I took away from the solo one. They're just weird. <laughs> 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 when you boil it down, <laughs> that's my tweet. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: And so Romulus and Remus, that's where we've got them as like they as babies. There was sort of the legend wasn't there about them sort of going down the river, the wolf looking after them.
3: Oh yeah. Oh, if we go back further oh, to that? the start of their life
1: Well there was a there was a particular there was an alternative to that which I, I feel like Ali needs to hear about. It was the Phantom Phallus.
3: Oh. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I think uh, to hear ancient about the Rome. Oh. Okay, so one of the challenges that the Romans face is that every so often a phallus will appear in a fire, and it it's quite, it seems quite substantial. Uh, it's definitely warm, and usually when they see a phallus in a fire appear like this, they think it must be a sign of the gods. So some hapless woman needs to have sex with it so they can have a semi-divine child. And one of the stories that is told about the birth of Romulus and Remus is that one of these phalluses appears in a fire and their mother is forced to be locked in a room with this phantom phallus and she's impregnated and remarkably gives birth to twins. And twins in the ancient world are always considered a bit of a miracle. They're still considered miracles today. Twins are really quite fascinating in many respects and in the ancient world the fact that you know you were able to get them to birth and that they both survive is kind of incredible um but yeah you know the power of the phallus in the fire
0: yeah i mean how often is this happening (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> At least well, twice actually, in the book. Yeah. I was, was going to say, there's also my favourite king, who's much further down the line than Romulus, but he is viewed as a bit of a second founder of Rome. And his name is Servius Tullius, and his mum is captured in a war with Rome, and she ends up being a slave in the palace, so she's in the royal quarters, and she apparently also catches sight of a floating phallus in the fireplace and naturally goes and tells people about it and is like, what should I do? It doesn't seem quite normal for a penis just to be hanging there in the fire. And they say, you're absolutely right, you should be locked in there, dressed as a bride, and have sex with it immediately. Mm. And this is how she apparently gets pregnant with... An eventual king of Rome, Servius Tullius, who's even more amazing than Romulus, I think, because he was born a slave and ended up becoming the king of Rome.
0: Okay, I just, it's mad, isn't it? Because that is surely just as odd then as now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it might be even more
3: odd if it happened now, but. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) I mean, certainly the answer in both occasions wouldn't be whatever advice she was given. I mean, that's not... Okay. They're just I go back to my original tweet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we've got uh, Romulus killing Remus uh, and founding the city, and we've got him uh, and his brother as a baby, and we've got the phantom phallus in the fire. Um, people probably aren't familiar with the phantom phallus, but they might be familiar with those other bits of the legend, but actually, and which I certainly wasn't reading the book realised, I didn't really have any idea of what Romulus actually then does... As king, I only think of him just as doing that founding bit, but actually, he mm. is the first in the line of kings. So, is there much to say about him as a king? Is he meant to be a great king, or is it really just all about that foundation moment?
3: He's certainly thought of as being quite an important figure, not just for the foundation moment, but for some of the things that he does to try and increase Rome's reputation over the course of his rule, because it's basically a band of. Uh, young men essentially coming together and then Rome expands a little bit by opening the city up as a place of asylum to people who have run out of luck elsewhere so that's the first way that they go about increasing their population from their sort of like gangster moment in the beginning but most of the people that turn up and accept asylum are also men so Rome is developing into a pretty sort of like Bro, like place. It's very there's not a lot of women around, and they're not really sure how they're gonna uh, sort of find wives for themselves.
2: So it's once a they've built, dress, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's tough out there.
3: How do you found a new city? How does it work? And I was like, of course, there are only men. And so they think to themselves, well, maybe we'll go out and offer ourselves out to our neighbours. We'll get to know people in the area. We'll suggest that maybe we could make some strategic marriages. The trouble is that these places are the places that the people that they've brought into Rome, these the people who have come to Rome have been rejected by these places already. So mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a real deal to Rome's neighbours to be like, sure, you could marry my daughter. I mean, I know that guy's a criminal, but that'll be fine. So (laughs) the neighbours, people in the surrounding area around Rome, resoundingly uh, decline uh, the the offer of marriage uh, to these young Roman gentlemen, And this means that Romulus has to come up with another plan. Unfortunately, this plan uh, involves assault and inviting a whole bunch of uh, people to Rome for a festival. And the good news is that when you come together for a religious festival in the ancient world, it's a moment of hospitality. It's supposed to be a coming together in friendship and trust. So people come along, assuming that it's going to be great. And then Romulus and his men turn on the guests and basically captive take captive all of the women and force them to become Their wives, which is a very kind way to say that we're talking about the rape of the Sabine women.
0: So bad egg, ploughing that bad egg furrow there. They they like their leaders wrong, it seems. It's
3: not a great time. Um, No, it
0: sounds blooming awful, but quite fun if you can just go off and start your own society in the woods. But it does sound an awful lot like... First of all, I didn't know he was definitely a real person. Is he definitely a real person?
3: Look, it depends on who you (laughs) ask. Some archaeologists and some historians argue very strongly that there is enough evidence to suggest that he was a real person. Hmm. What is probably more likely is that his story might be an amalgamation of the various stories told about rulers in this period.
0: It sounds an awful lot like his Andrew Tate has gone to the forest with a group of blokes and then... (laughs) He's turned very quickly into the Wagner Group, accepting criminals, and then they, they, they're off, they're off and running. It's all. And this is
3: how the toxic masculinity begins.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh right. Okay. What's next for these these cheery bunch? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's also interesting, like the um, because obviously later on the Romans will consider themselves superior to everybody else. But obviously when you're just founding yourself from all these different bits, I suppose there isn't actually a a Roman race as such. There are all these different places around them. So I guess the key thing for Romulus and all of these kings seems to be gradually expanding and sort of taking over um, sort of the surrounding kingdom. So, like, what's the makeup of Italy at this point or that sort of area? Like, who who is everybody?
2: Yeah, it, it sounds very grand when you read the stories that the Romans write about themselves later. It sounds like they're part of these big, glorious, epic, Battles and founding magnificent cities, but really Rome is a fairly small settlement at this point in time. They're genuinely fighting with their neighbours most of the time. The big powers really are—you've got the Etruscans that are largely to the north, and then you also have some Greek settlements to the south, um, and then there are there are other various ethnic groups around Rome who Rome will gradually fight and eventually establish some some dominance over them people who popped up in our stories again and again like you know the Volscians and the aquians and and those sorts of people
0: i've heard of etruscans they're they're, they're fond of pots <laughs> <laughs> but that's yeah so that's the sort of time period we're we're chatting about
2: what yeah, no, is we the time th-
0: period we're chatting about seven so 700 bc
3: yeah, when we're thinking about the kings, we're dealing with everything from about 750 BC up until 509.
1: Okay. and I guess in that description you were saying, but the, um, you know, actually it's all quite small scale at this point, even though the language is still as if it is Rome, but it's actually much more small scale. So I guess from Ali's imagination, we can sort of maybe imagine we're a bit more in English terms, Alfred the Great, it's mud it's Definitely. not there's no matter <laughs> yes. we've not got no. to the glitz of everything that comes later
0: yeah it is yeah it's it's um, it's not the Rome of stone and uh, chariots at this point is it not, not,
1: not really
0: right. no <laughs> <laughs> um.
3: we think they have a couple of buildings that have made of stone at this point but that's about it most things are sort of like living in huts, small-scale farming
1: it's not what you're expecting
0: Especially if you're going there on holiday, that is not the realm of
1: the. Something else actually reminded me of Alfred um, with Romulus was that, and I think you were saying at the start the question over whether there are seven kings or whether there's more, because there's this chap, um, is it Titus Tatius?
3: Oh, yes.
1: Sounds like there was a sort of coking thing going on. It's interesting recently there's been these discoveries of these coins um, in England where there's like a Mercian king who's around at the same time as Alfred. And it suggests that perhaps actually they were working together. And then when that guy died, Alfred just rewrites the history as if it was all him the whole time. And it was quite well, interesting. Well. It seemed like the same thing happens with Romulus. <laughs> this is other king. And
3: Yeah, look, trouble. Romulus is not a lucky guy, really. I mean, he's already positioned himself pretty poorly uh, in, in everybody's opinion already from the stories that we've just told. But it does get... Worse because not only has he murdered his twin brother to found the city in the first place, but it turns out that he's not quite capable of mustering the force needed at this very young stage of the city to placate all of the neighbors. So, this rape of the Sabine women really gets everybody in the surrounding area offside and they Shock. all immediately
2: yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and they all immediately go to war against rome and yeah. they're all bigger they're all more well established and the thing that rome has as its sole advantage is that most of its population is guys at the moment and they are quite warlike and so they know what they're doing on a battlefield so they do win most of these encounters But they don't outright win the one against the Sabine people. So the Sabine people sort of live in the mountains to the east. And they come in and they have to come to some sort of agreement. Ultimately, Romulus has to give up a little bit of his power and agree that he will now co-rule Rome in conjunction with the Sabine king, Titus Tatius.
0: That sounds like it's going to end bloodily.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and Romulus doesn't play well with others so as far as we can see he gets rid of Titus Tatius eventually uh, and I, I must admit I've become increasingly concerned with Dr. G's obsession with characters like Augustus and Romulus, people who can't share power, who like to kill <laughs> off the people that they work with <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm watching my back, let's just say that <laughs>
3: I don't know. Just got to wait for the right opportunity. I know. I
2: know. Yeah. You've got to set to the 10 years and now what? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Look, it's longer than Titus Tatius lasted with Romulus. So I'll give you. So <laughs>
2: he's got <laughs> to about
3: five years and then Romulus did find a way to get him bumped off. Yeah.
1: Definitely. And so he doesn't count. So he's not one of the seven, is he? This oh. Titus guy.
3: Yeah, he doesn't get to count as one of the seven. So I think this is one of the things that is really fascinating, this sort of myth of there being seven kings. There's obviously already just looking at the very sort of general source material that we've got that there was at least eight I mean, it's on the front cover of our book, and, and I suppose, <laughs> I mean, we've lent into it because it is, it is the kind of thing, if people know anything about kings, they'll be like, oh, there were seven kings, and you're like, sure, but as soon as you look at it a little bit more closely, you're like, wait a minute, I mean, it, we, definitely, we definitely have at
2: least eight. Yeah, mm. we probably should have called it the seven official, in brackets, kings of
1: Rome. <laughs> <laughs> nice catchy title. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly, Yeah. Nothing
1: like a a title with a a footnote. Yeah, that would be a new trend to start. Some people move away from footnotes, lean into them right on the title page. Uh, (laughs) But weirdly, I sort of feel like it almost makes it feel more believable, the fact that, and there are other things in the book like this as well, that there's these debates that you can have. So it's not like there's this very, very neat, incredibly perfect foundation myth that goes through these kings and it's all just very perfectly figured out there's no debate around it there's things that have to be explained and looked at and we've not actually talked about where the the evidence got what the sources are for this but there's sort of discussion there as well you saying about the date of the foundation and that discussion but actually there are roman historians that are looking back and trying to figure this stuff out
3: yeah it's pretty clear that we've got various source traditions and there seems to be a lot of different tales that are told about this early period so depending on who's writing stuff down when uh very much changes what sort of stories they've got access to and who they might be hearing things from
2: ali you were questioning us before about whether we maybe made a mistake about writing about (laughs) kings instead of emperors but A lot of our sources, our particularly detailed ones, they were actually being written at around the time that Rome was switching from the Republic to the period that would become, you know, the Roman Empire with the emperors. And we kind of think that that time period, that very messy end of the Republic, and then you've got, you know, the rise of, you know, one-man rule with Augustus and his dynasty, we kind of feel like sometimes that might have influenced the way that they Write their stories about this this very early period where you had one man rule in Rome.
0: I mean, yeah, because I'm I'm very much of the um, majority of people who um, always go, "Well, hang on, Julius Caesar wasn't emperor. What's going on here?" And so, <laughs> so when you start talking about kings, wait
2: Well, this is the thing about the Romans, I mean, this is one of the reasons why Julius Caesar gets himself stabbed multiple times, because he seemed to be accruing a little bit too much power, and perhaps aiming at kingship, and the Romans are never fond of anyone who's aiming to kingship, because the way that this monarchic period ends is with the Romans not only kicking out the kings, but vowing that they will never have kings again, that a king will never again rule in Rome, so... Anybody who seems to be getting a little bit too uppity, they tend to bump them off, and Julius Caesar is no exception.
0: But then, then it kicks start a whole thing, like the ultimate, an emperor. What? But it's a different Yeah, word. and it,
3: it's kind of the <laughs> semantic uh, difference is very important. So Augustus never calls himself a king. He always calls himself the princeps you know, the best man, essentially. And this, in combination with his terrifying politics of eliminating (laughs) every single person who might stand against him, is really quite successful.
2: Yeah, so it's it's weird, I know, because it's like, you can't call yourself a Rex, but you can go around calling yourself the best man. (laughs) 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 Well, in the same way that they end up calling themselves
3: Imperator, which becomes our word emperor and it it comes out of the military and that's fine from a Roman perspective. You're, you're able to applaud people for being a great general. That's all right. So as long as you've got that sort of slippage between meanings and you don't slide into wrecks, then you tend to be okay.
0: Uh, So that's what, is this what you're saying then about their problem with, um, uh, Um, like they're not dynastic they're not they don't have leaning on sons
2: it's very weird I know because you guys obviously um, you guys obviously are dealing with dynasties most of the time but the Roman kings as far as we can tell are not dynastic in fact they're not often even Roman they're generally outsiders not from Rome (laughs) just to add to the confusion
0: (laughs) pick a man (laughs) any
2: man Yeah, but essentially a Roman Roman king is someone who is elected or chosen. Um, So what happens, what's meant to happen is when a Roman king dies, they have a period called the interregnum. So the period in between kings where power is shared amongst the elite men in Rome. And eventually they will choose someone to propose as the next king. And so they'll be selected for the position. It's not passed on from father to son.
0: Sorry. So these are like really basic questions that I, before I can get on with your book, I just need to <laughs> have these settled. So that's the Andrew Tate thing coming through. Like there's never a suggestion that it could ever be a woman. And that's, I know, a naive question, but you've got these really powerful women hanging around the edges. Like, who was it? Who was the other Roman woman we did, Graham? Um, Calig- not Caligula. That's
1: a man. Oh, we spoke to Emma Southern about um, Agrippina.
0: Yes. So that's someone who could feasibly seize power in the same way, but just couldn't, presumably.
3: Yeah, the Romans would never, never allow this to happen, really. So. No. One of the things that is most striking about their political organisation, it seems even in this early stage, is that it is run through the family. So the family unit is the political unit and the father is the head of that political unit. Women are considered to be tradable goods. And if one of them stood up and said, I'll be in charge, the men would laugh at her.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but Rome is where we get obviously... This idea of the patriarchy farm. So these days you might hear women talking about, yeah man, I'm gonna smash the patriarchy, baby. But what and they're talking about obviously, you know, control by men, but the idea of patriarchy is something that comes from ancient Rome, and It actually means rule by the father specifically, not rule just by men in general. Yeah. And so it's very much that idea of the father being the head of the household. And if you're a good father and you're in control of your family unit, then you are suited for political life because you've shown that you have the capacity to to rule and exercise control and keep affairs in order. But having said that, one of the things that we love about the Roman monarchy is that because it is a, a bit of a family affair you do get more mention of women than you actually get in the early Republic. So we do have some very powerful female figures, like Tanaquil is a favourite of both Dr. G and I. She's someone that we can actually agree on. <laughs> and, and she is the wife of one of the kings of Rome called Lucius Tarquinius Priscus. And she ends up engineering the succession of my favourite, our guy who was born from the smoking phallus in the fire, so <laughs> is Tullius. <laughs>
0: Blimey.
2: Yeah, and she does that in a really cool way, because basically Lucius Taquinius Priscus, very unfortunately for him, he winds up getting an axe to the head. So it seems that the sons of the previous king, who he had succeeded, weren't too happy that they hadn't become kings themselves. Now, we don't know why they would really think that that was a possibility, because as we've said, Rome is not doesn't have a dynastic Mm -hmm. system but they are unhappy about it and when they grow up to be adults they end up hiring these two local shepherds to stage a fight at the dwelling of Lucius Tarquinius Priscus the king and when he comes out to sort it out because they're really going at each other and they're, and they're like we won't we won't settle this until we speak to the king he's the only one that can settle this fight when he's talking to one of them the other one takes out an axe and Thw- yeah, thwack right in the back of the head and Tanaquil seemingly doesn't miss a beat she instantly is like it's going to be okay it's going to be okay it's just an axe to the head tis but a scratch a flesh she pulls wound. him
3: off off through the <laughs> stage curtain she's like nothing to see here guys don't worry we're looking <laughs> yeah. after this it's going to be yeah. fine merely a flesh wound yeah <laughs>
2: meanwhile she turns around to the family and she's like none of you breathe a freaking word okay we're going to get servius tullius in here and he's going to come in and save this family he's going to be the next king and he's going to look out for us because we looked out for him when he was just a little slave boy he owes us man he's going to make sure that we're protected and so she makes sure that servius tullius gets chosen to be the next king of rome and he does indeed look after the family and make sure everything's fine and it's it's only when everything is safe that Tanaquil's like, oh, yeah. So it turns out an axe wound to the head. It is kind of fatal. He <laughs> is, in fact, dead.
0: <laughs> mm. yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So we got, yeah, so that's good. So unlike our early kings, where we have no reference to their consorts at all, <laughs> you've actually got quite a bit of um, chat going on.
1: Though similar in a way, though, the fact that it's, like, that's in her role... It's not exactly in her role as a mother, but it sort of is. It's not as a queen mother, but, like, it's when the the king dies that it seems like... That which was something we saw with the Saxons, where, as queen, it was perhaps limited, but then when the king dies, suddenly they kind of allowed to exert authority in a weird way because it's i don't know if it's less threatening when they're a mother
2: yeah no, i think we definitely get the sense that she is looking after her family we're not really sure what family she's protecting because the dates are really messed up even the romans say we have no idea to how to untangle this mess we can't tell whether she has young sons or young grandsons but she's clearly trying to protect some young male figures in her family she she actually has quite a significant role even in helping to sort of elevate Lucius Tarquinius Priscus to the kingship in the first place because they're immigrants they come from Etruria they come from this Etruscan settlement she is herself an Etruscan woman and they basically see rumors as like a bit of like america they're like this is the land of opportunity <laughs> we we can't we can't rise as high as we would like in our native land so we're just gonna pack up take our oodles of wealth go to rome because we've heard that you know you can make it big there with just some cash in your pocket and they were right well,
1: that was another quite interesting thing, actually the etruscan thing cause i think it was the point where we were saying that um priscus is like he's wearing etruscan clothes and he's everything, all this culturally, it's all very Etruscan. And it sort of begs but, the question, yeah. like, are they just pretending that they haven't been conquered by the Etruscans? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
3: yeah, and, and that is a big issue for the Romans because they do seem to be papering over a little bit of the complexities of what has happened in this early period of their history because they're clearly situated within a political nexus in central Italy that involves all of these other people. And the Etruscans are the most powerful group in In the region in this period, for sure, because they extend from Tuscany all the way up into the north. And they're thought to have had 12 kings themselves across their various regions that they controlled. And then as we have Priscus come in, we start to see Etruscan finery also be put on display. And He starts to go around and he gets permission to wear Etruscan clothes and the accoutrements of an Etruscan king. Everyone's like, wait a minute, did he get permission or did you guys get invaded and taken over (laughs) by the Etruscans? What would be more plausible here? Because if he looks like an Etruscan king and he is from Etruria originally, what are the chances that Rome has fallen in this period and is now under the control of the Etruscan people?
0: How interesting. So what happens? Do they, like, rebel? No. <laughs> they just assimilate.
2: Uh, you know, Lu- Lu- Lucius Taquinus Priscus seems to be quite a, a popular king, I would say, Dr. G, wouldn't you?
3: He does seem to be quite popular. He kind of embodies this concept, as you were saying, of the opportunity that can come to an outsider who embraces the Roman way. And this is a story certainly that, the Romans of much later periods are interested in conveying as well, like the benefits of Roman citizenship. Uh. But yeah, we've got this idea of Tanaquil as the wife of Tarquinius Priscus as being somebody who is capable of reading the signs. So this is another element of Etruscan wisdom that is coming through, the capacity to be able to read the flights of birds, be able to interpret signs as being from the gods. So she's the one who, when the phallus uh, in the fire is reported, she's the one who takes action on this. When Servius Tullius is just a small baby, he has a ring of fire appear around his head. Everybody's shocked. And they're like the child. They're like, they go to save him, but he's not harmed in any way. It's, it's, a, it's a vision. And she's like, He's made for great things. We must take care of this child. <laughs> so she's, she's been aware of his potential for greatness ever since he was an infant, um, and even probably pre-birth, given the nature of his birth.
1: Could we do a quick little... Because um, I realise sort of, we've got, I guess, probably people who aren't familiar with the, the kings and all the different names. Could we have a quick run-through of the kings, actually? So we started with Romulus. He yep. does all of his nefarious deeds
2: he does but the good thing is he probably got chopped up into tiny little pieces in a meeting so that's good (laughs) and he disappears
3: one day in a in a a sudden thunderstorm yeah and
2: and all the people that were at the meeting they're like You know, they have maybe like an arm hanging out of their toga as they're leaving. (laughs) 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 They're like, I don't know where he went. Who's Who's seen Romulus recently, not me.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So who's next?
3: The second king is a guy called Numa Pompilius, and he is a Sabine as well as Titus Tatius. So his claim to fame is introducing all of the sort of important religious aspects into ancient roman society yeah brilliant
0: yeah carry on
2: (laughs) but and then after numa the romans have decided that whilst numa was kind of cool he was a little bit too chilled out you know rome's rome they like their war and so they return to someone who's quite aggressive with tullus hostilius his name is not an accident (laughs) uh where do we get it from <laughs> well, well, I mean, I think the name is meant to evoke his personality. Oh, yeah.
0: no oh, shame. <laughs>
2: yeah. And so we get Tullus Tosilius as the third king of Rome. And then the fourth king of Rome is Ancus Marcius. He's a bit of a mix of everyone, I think, Dr. G, don't you think? He is. He's one of these ones that
3: nobody's ever heard of. You're like, there's seven kings of Rome. And then people are like, you mean Romulus? And you're like, yes. <laughs> and six others. <laughs> and Ancus Amakius is kind of like this sort of nondescript character almost the one that we have the least amount of information for I think mm. but he does get caught up in a conspiracy potentially of having maybe murdered Hostilius yeah, by set- yeah, exactly. to get to the yeah throne. by setting
2: his house on fire with his entire family inside yeah that would do it wouldn't it
3: and a good old Scottish hall
1: burning.
0: Yeah, The <laughs> whole thing sounds very Scottish, doesn't it? The way of yeah.
1: succession and... Uh, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And is this when we sort of... It sounds. Like, it seemed like it was starting to get a little bit dynastic because like, I think... I mean, I don't know if maybe they're guessing or if it's not all certain, but that he maybe was the grandson, was it, of Numa? Or something like that or... Yes. So he's starting to get yes. a bit... Yes, this of...
3: seemed to be one of his claims to fame. Mm. Yeah. The, this idea of... There's various moments where people come through in the history and they want the monarchy to be dynastic, but there's not good evidence that it ever is. I guess if
1: you're like the son or the grandson, then you're going to be pro-monarchy.
3: Yeah, <laughs> like,
1: yeah I think we yeah. should just keep it, keep it in the family. Yeah,
3: <laughs>
2: yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, like I could do this. I'd be great at this. Yeah.
2: And then of course we get our fifth king of Rome who's Lucius Taquinius Priscus, who may indicate there is a ever so slight Etruscan takeover or it might just be the fact that Rome does have a habit of picking people who aren't actually from Rome to be their king. And so it's totally cool to have someone from the Etruscan civilization to rock up and be your king, uh, especially when he's got an awesome wife who can read the signs. And then, of course, we've got Servius Tullius, our slave who became king. And our final guy, I can't believe we actually haven't mentioned him yet because he's also (laughs) probably one of the most notorious characters of this period. We have Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, or the Superbus, as we like to call him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the the meaning there of, uh, well, Superbus, (laughs) Superbus, isn't uh, because he's so super.
3: No, and yeah, and not because he's a bus, <laughs> either, no. unfortunately. Uh, this is a reference to him being proud, and so we think this is one of the ways to distinguish him from the other Tarquinius, because we've got two of them in yeah. here. So we've got Tarquin the Proud, if you like. Okay, he's a very arrogant man. If you think that the other kings could have possibly, you know, had tickets on themselves. This guy takes the yeah. cake. Yeah,
2: I mean, Servius Tullius can, you know, walk around and be like, hey, I was conceived by a smoking hot phallus in a fire. <laughs> <laughs> Beat that. But he unfortunately ends up uh, marrying his two daughters to these two guys who may be the sons or grandsons of Tuquinius Priscus, the fifth king. We're not really sure what relationship they have, but... It turns out to be a bit of a disastrous match. Like, it's literally the original sitcom because he has one daughter who's very shy and demure and prim and proper, and he has another daughter who's super ambitious and wild and proud and arrogant and violent, it would seem. And on the Tarquin side of things, you've got two men who have the same personality makeup, but wouldn't you know it, they end up getting married to the opposite personality (laughs) type. (laughs) Cue the laugh track. <laughs> yeah. And so the two proud ones end up chatting and being like, God, can you believe the people we've ended up getting married to? How boring are they? Got no drive whatsoever. You know what we should do? We should be married. Yes. In fact, let's just murder our spouses and we'll be married. So that's what ends up happening. They, they murder their spouses and they get married. And then they decide that Servius Tullius is a usurper who should never have been king in the first place. And keep in mind that this is Servius's daughter who is saying this and his (laughs) son-in-law. They're the ones who are saying, yeah, kick this guy off the throne. And Servius has ruled for quite some time. So by the time that they're getting around to their evil planning, he is quite an elderly man. And essentially they stage a coup where Superbus seizes control from Servius. And when Servius rocks up and is like, hey, what gives? I kind of thought I was the king around here. He apparently picks Servius up and throws him down the stairs of the building that they're meeting in. Servius is an old man, so he's, you know, he's feeling it. And so he starts to sort of like limp home to try and get to safety. And he has assassins sent after Servius. And so Servius is murdered in the streets. And Superbus' wife, Servius' daughter, Tulia, she is, you know, keen to get amongst it, so she decides she's going to take her, you know, take herself out for a little ride, a little bit of a victory lap. And on her way home, she runs across her father's body. And when her driver says, oh, um, isn't that your father's corpse lying in the street? She says, drive. I said drive! And they drive straight over her Dad's body on, on her way home. This is why they don't like them.
0: <laughs> Good grief.
1: For the benefit to the listeners, Ali is just mouth hanging open.
0: It's horrible.
3: But we're building up to the level of terribleness, which will mean the Romans do not want kings ever Yeah, because that's not, that's not the moment. But we haven't, we <laughs> haven't, quite, reached, we haven't quite reached that threshold <laughs> yet, but you can see that they're laying the groundwork yeah. for their own demise. Yeah.
2: They're like, here's a hint. This guy isn't a nice
3: guy.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> when reading I was, um, his uh, chapter, I was thinking, oh, it almost sound, seems like it's really the, the wife or the daughter, Tullia, that's sort of calling the shots at this point. But uh, he does turn out to be quite awful himself doesn't he oh
2: yeah they they were attracted to each other i think we have to give him
3: (laughs) yeah i think we have to give him some credit for being awful as well because you know she has come to the position that her father's got to go or her grandfather you know we're not really quite sure of the the lineage there and so somehow these two have been made for each other in a way they're both incredibly ambitious and so they do get what they want Superbus. Does become the next king. He's terrorized Rome through this behavior, and they're kind of like, well, the strong man wins. Uh Rome loves a good display of uh physical power, so it's hard to resist Superbus coming in. But Superbus is pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Why?
0: <laughs>
3: Other than... Oh, you know,
2: I'm, so, was, I'm so glad you yeah, uh, uh, lost. <laughs> yeah, the dramatic yeah, pause. There, there are a number of stories about him. I mean, you know, we could go into the, the hard labour. He makes the Roman citizenry perform and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that he's mostly known for and the thing that which triggers the overthrow of the monarchy is the very unfortunate affair around uh, a young woman called Lucretia. So... Lucretia is married to a man who's actually a distant relative of the royal family. So he's of, her husband is of relatively high standing, but it means there's also this familial connection with the Tarquin dynasty that are in control. And as it so happens, Rome is at war at this particular time. I mean, Rome is often at war, so, you know, what else is new? And with this particular place that they're fighting, they end up being engaged in a siege, and a siege is kind of boring, so there's a lot of, like, sitting around and, you know shooting the breeze and so there comes this one night where a bunch of the elite men are sitting around and chatting about various things and they get onto the subject of their wives and of course they're all bragging that they have the best wife. And the best wife by Roman standards is someone who's very obedient, uh, someone who obeys like the Roman standards, which is, you know, women aren't supposed to drink wine, they're supposed to be very loyal, very chaste, they're supposed to spend their life, you know, looking after their family, within the home, domestic duties, that kind of stuff, you know. Anyway, and so they decide that, you know, I, I I imagine that quite late into the night when they've had a lot to drink, they decide they're going to actually go and spy on their wives to prove once and for all who actually has the best wife. And so they're all stumbling around like, shh, 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 not they can't hear us. <laughs> they can't hear us, guys, shh. And one by one, they find that whilst they're away, their wives are doing everything they shouldn't be doing. So they're partying, they've got friends over, they're drinking, it's not a good look. But finally they get to the house of Lucretia, and she is doing exactly what a Roman matron should be doing. She's sitting around with her slaves instructing them overseeing their work they're working the wool they're spinning all that kind of stuff and one of the people who's in this group spying on her is one of superbus's sons so he's one of the princes and his name is very unfortunately sextus but it's it's not a not a reflection of his actions it's just a. it's just are we sure (laughs) i certainly hope not but anyway, he conceives a passion for her. It's, it's like the librarian effect. He's like, oh, she's just so good. I want to take her and I want to ruin her. And so he decides that he's going to do this by playing on the familial connection. So they all go back, you know, they go back to the camp and... Everyone else forgets about this, but not sexist. He goes back to Lucretia's house when he knows her husband is away and says, oh, hey, I just need a place to crash for the night. You don't mind, do you? And, of course, she's a hostess. And she's like, yeah, no, of course, you're part of the family. Come on in. And he waits till really late at night when everyone's asleep, sneaks into her room, puts a sword to her throat, and says, we're going to have sex now. And being a virtuous Roman woman, she says, I don't think so, man. Like, this is only for my husband, so just back right off and he says okay i tell you what i am going to kill you and then i'm going to kill a male slave and put his body in your bed and i'm going to say that i found you two having sex together and that i killed you in an effort to restore our family honor and you won't be able to do anything about it because you will be dead and you will die in shame Now, she, of course, doesn't want this because she is a virtuous matron, and so she really feels like she has no choice but to submit. So this is really horrible. She is raped by this guy, and he wanders off the next morning thinking, job done, got what I wanted, got what I came for. But Lucretia isn't taking this. She decides to summon her husband, her father, and they bring along a family friend, a guy called Brutus, and she tells them everything that happened and they're horrified they can't believe what happens they're so angry once she's finished telling her story she says to them swear swear that you will seek vengeance for me and they're like yeah of course we're gonna take care of this don't you worry like that's our job and she's like great now that i've got that promise i have to kill myself and she pulls out a dagger and they're like whoa hang on this you're escalating this way too far like you're not actually guilty of anything you know you've you've proven that through your actions you don't have to die she's like yes i actually do because otherwise people are going to point to me as an example of what you know of like adultery or like what women can get away with or something like that i can't have that whether i like it or not my reputation is on the line here i have to die and she stabs herself and this is the moment where they're like you know what the roman kings this dynasty they've they've We can't, we can't have this happening. The whole Tarquin family, they've got to go. And so Brutus, this family friend, he actually takes Lucretia's body out into public, shows her body to the public, and is like, this is the kind of behavior that we are tolerating. This is what we're allowing them to get away with, the abuses that we are suffering at the hands of this king and his sons. Like, where is it going to stop? And he brings up all the other stuff that they've done over the years as well, like this particular family, and he's like, No more, we've got to get rid of them. And so they do. They they kick them out. And it, it's not quite as smooth as it sounds, like they kind of just like lock the gates against them. They do have to fight ongoing wars for like another ten years with this family who don't seemingly want to get kicked out of power, shockingly. <laughs> but that is the moment that really that really ends the Roman monarchy, and when it's all said and done, that's when Brutus gets the Roman people to take this sacred oath that Rome will never be ruled by a rex again.
0: Gosh, and um, how 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 many when's that? What, what how many years does that last?
2: The the war, or like how long does the like,
0: yeah the how long do they have not have a single ruler or?
2: Oh, that
3: so so this is five oh nine BC and the next time we have a single ruler is gonna be Augustus in twenty seven.
0: Oh, pretty good then.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a decent brand. They do yeah, for run, themselves. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> That's why you've got we had the controversy for people like Sulla and then obviously on to Caesar and then Augustus, where yeah. you've had hundreds of years of republic and then
3: Yeah. Um, Mm. And it's also part of the reason why Brutus in the story of Julius Caesar is such a significant figure, because his name and his family lineage harks back to this original Brutus, who's reputed to be so important to kicking out the kings Mm. in the first place.
0: Yeah.
1: And it is that way around. It's not that you have Brutus do that to Caesar and then they think, right, let's have this myth about, you know, it before. It's that he is actually named after and inspired by the original
2: yeah the Romans are very big on this idea that if you're from the same family you ha- you take on certain traits so that that's what we see a lot of the time not only do the Romans confusingly like to have the same name over many many generations but they also think mm-hmm. that all those guys kind of have the same personality type because they're from the same family <laughs> so it is definitely a legacy that Brutus carries
1: so are people around Caesar being say look he's literally called brutus i really think you've got to watch this guy
3: <laughs> <laughs> be careful yeah
1: why um, I, I guess um i think i was wondering i suppose it's maybe if it's maybe if there's a whole family that maybe that makes a bit more sense but i was wondering why is the whole idea of kings rather than just the family like why they didn't just kick them out and make somebody else king because it's it particularly a- that Servius Tullius, the one that before actually seemed like he was quite good and quite popular. So it's interesting that they decided, right, no, this is it. Never a king again, rather than mm. just a different one.
2: Yeah, well, this is where we have to kind of read against the narrative a little bit. It's a bit confusing because Brutus is actually a part of this Tarquin family as well. He is also uh, mm. a slightly... Distant relative so technically if they're kicking all the Tarquins out then <laughs> Brutus would have to kick himself out as well he would have to like yeah self exile but mm. he doesn't do that so it is a bit confusing what's happening it seems as though if we actually look at Rome in the later part of this monarchic period and we look at the early republic that what's probably actually happening is that there are a lot of warlords so men who've managed to accrue a lot of power and a lot of wealth and a lot of influence. And it's probably, you know, this constant sort of rivalry for power that we see. And with people like Servius and Superbus, the last two kings of Rome, they're both usurpers. And particularly someone like Servius, even though he does seem to be popular, you're right, he does seem to be popular more with the people than he is with the elites. And superbus also alienates the elites. I think he re- he relies very much, I think, on strength of rule rather than you know having like a lovey-dovey relationship with the elites and <laughs> or, or, or anybody in his society. He seems to be pretty mean <laughs> to everyone, um, and so it seems almost like what we're seeing here is actually members of his own family staging a coup against him. So it's probably actually an aristocratic coup that we see that gets rid of the kings of Rome. It's actually not quite the, the glorious, you know, strike for freedom or something that, that it might come across as. Mm.
3: But it also does explain where Brutus is coming from, because if he wants to stick around in Rome, he really has to make a case that things are going to be different and quite different from the way that they have been under somebody like Superbus. So in order to sort of ameliorate that family connection, it's about giving away some of that power and splitting it up. So it's less dangerous and less concentrated.
1: So we've got seven official Kings. (laughs) Um, Obviously we, uh, in our uh, day-to-day podcasting lives review uh, Kings and Queens. So I thought it might be uh, fun not to not to do, obviously, full episodes on all seven of them. But like, could we just go <laughs> through our factors and have a think of like, which of the seven kings do you think is like best and worst? Absolutely. Nature.
2: Yeah. That's,
3: let's do it. <laughs> let's so, do it.
1: Battliness. Oh,
2: OK. <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow. Well, uh, see, look, this is tough already. Look, I can tell you who the worst is. Yes. I think the worst is, is fair to say it's going to be Numa. Yeah, He has one reputed battle uh, with a nearby city, but even that is minimised in most of the sources as not really being a thing. He's much more about peace than he is about war.
0: Yeah, he's yeah. the second guy. Yeah, yeah. he's the second, he's the second, Kingdom, the
3: second guy. guy. He sounds like my, my
0: favourite chap.
1: Yeah, he was the religious one.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh. He's the Yeah, he's, he's your <laughs> philosopher king.
0: Yeah, he was yeah. never going to last long, was he? He
3: he does rule for quite some time.
0: Oh. Really? Uh,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we think he rules for about 40 so years. Oh, blimey. So he does all right for himself. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, I think I'd probably give badliness to Romulus just because I think he's up against the most you know like he's trying to establish something new and hold it all together and he does some truly horrific things in warfare and he has a violent end so I kind of would give it to him even though as Dr G has said most of the kings have to have some sort of battliness in order to be (laughs) a king of Rome and they're also all kind of credited with adding territory to Rome. I mean, that, that's kind of the, part of the myth of, of the monarchy. Each king adds a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. Mm.
1: <laughs> mm. Okay, so, uh, well, I mean, there's, there's going to be quite a battle here. Scandal.
2: Oh. <laughs>
3: oh, look, this is a tough category. Ah, oh, There's so much scandal.
2: <laughs> yeah, Romulus yeah. pretty good
1: again there. He's got the killing his brother right at the start.
2: Yeah, the possibly same. being raised by a prostitute. It, a yeah. she-wolf please
3: <laughs> oh is that what that means so yeah the the woman is called uh, lupa, which is the latin for wolf yeah. and it's also slang for a sex worker
0: not just not I mean I don't know why I, I don't know why I'm <laughs> believing the, uh, the story about the wolf <laughs> more than the human female <laughs> but okay Yeah, that makes much more sense. Jolly (laughs) good.
2: Well, I I think that, to be fair, Dr. G, I think that Lucius Taquinius Superbus might just pit Romulus at the post because we've got, obviously, the scandal of killing his father-in-law, who's also the previous king. We've got the scandal of killing his previous wife so that he can run off with his sister-in-law. We've then, of course, got all the horrible things that he does to the population of Rome and also the people that he's trying to conquer because he actually sends one of his sons in as like a mole to deceive this city that he's trying to conquer. And it, and it works, like they totally infiltrate this city like <laughs> for like a really long period of time. It's very sinister. And then of course, we have got the the final act, which is the, the rape of the unfortunate Lucretia. I mean, I don't know if it gets more scandalous than that. Although I do want to
3: mention in the honourable scandal (laughs) section a story that I haven't raised, which is in connection with Numa, our very delightful philosopher king, because part of his story is that apparently he rules Rome by day, but by night he is wandering the forest, engaging in a sexual liaison with a goddess. Mm. And she's the one who gives him all the great ideas about how to rule Rome properly.
0: I mean, is that another one of these weird metaphors? And I should think that he's, um, I don't know, or is he just a sex pest?
3: (laughs) (laughs) We cannot be sure. But uh, (laughs) I mean, it's the Romans. It it is hard to be sure. Uh, But this story does seem like pretty innocent. He has, Numa, by the time he becomes king, is a widower. So, and he doesn't seem to remarry. And he does have lots of good ideas, and people can't quite believe how good his ideas are. So they're like, "Well, it must. There must be some sort of divine influence here." <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Well, if, if Numa is got, if Numa seeds uh, scandal to uh, talk on his superbus, then I presumably Numa's got a decent chance of subjectivity. That's where he's he's got his oh, best yeah. hope.
2: I think so, actually. it is.
3: I think this is indeed where Numa shines. Being the least warlike means that he accrues the least amount of risk. Uh, there is a sense in which Rome's neighbours are becoming emboldened during the course of Numa's rule, but we don't hear a lot of rumour that they actually attack. So they're like, oh, the Romans are peaceful now. Now is our chance to wipe them out. But they never really go through with that. So it does seem to be a good time. The Romans are turning from a warlike aspect to a more ritual aspect and thinking about their relationship with the gods. And he introduces all of these priests to make it really difficult to go to war. So it's it's a yeah. good time.
2: And And lest we forget, Dr. G, he also introduces a ton of Of public
3: holidays Oh oh, he does Yes he reorganizes the whole calendar Delightful man Uh, If you think about what is one way That you could truly control the world Controlling time Is right up there with things that you could do So he decides um, What days are going to be Days where it's acceptable to do public business And days which should be dedicated To the gods And the Romans have way more public holidays than we do
0: Wow Good work. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's a shoo-in, isn't he?
1: Is it the names of the or the ordering of the months that is like his his thing?
3: Yes. Yeah, he 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 introduces a couple of new months. So Yuma, <laughs> if you want to be frustrated about the calendar, which is fair enough, he sticks January and February in there and pushes back the numerical order of the months so that they no longer make sense to the
2: Latin. Yeah. So December should be the tenth month, of course. But yeah. it's a twelfth month because
0: of Numa. Oh, we had a chat about decimalising <laughs> stuff the other day. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, right. Well. Okay. That's in the, that's a, a a negative for him, though.
2: I think an honourable second mention his category probably has to be Servius Tullius, because he does introduce an awful lot of reforms to try and make Rome run more smoothly. And it's him that we apparently have to thank for the census.
0: Yeah,
3: there's nothing quite like being counted. Yeah, I mean,
2: I don't know what makes, you know, the average person on the street happier than mindless bureaucracy.
3: Now, longevity
1: is a surprising one, given that this is ages and ages ago. It starts off with just a dodgy bloke in the woods going around killing people. (laughs) But they all seem to be around for ages. I mean, not like ridiculously long times. They're not sort of like Old Testament lengths.
3: but. Yes. So it just, it, it, this it's of, suspiciously even. Yeah. Let's
2: say. Yeah. They so, each seem to rule for about thirty to forty years, and and in a time where there's a lot of battle and disease, it does seem a little odd that like none of the kings, you know, die of an illness, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> or even the old you know pandemic of a sword in the head.
2: <laughs>
1: or at least not after <laughs> at least. So I think twenty four years is the shortest one. Yep. I think I've got yep. them written down. And then 44 the longest, which is Servius Tullius. So, yeah, I mean, does that make it more likely that at least some of these must be
3: amalgamations of different... I think
2: so. It,
3: it does raise some suspicions in terms of the source material, yes. yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like the Romans are like, right, we've got this amount of time and this many kings. Let's just divide it up between <laughs> them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Is it a coincidence that like the seven kings of Rome, the seven hills of Rome? Is it like seven a specific reason?
3: This is part of my theory about where the seven came from. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, yeah. They think they like the number seven.
0: Yeah, you didn't... were saying that at the start about the crows or whatever that they were arguing about
2: yeah and each oh each yes of the, the kings, vultures, yeah. yeah and each of the kings is often like credited with oh oh this is the king that founded the settlement on this hill and this is the king that founded the settlement yeah. on that hill and so that's <laughs> yeah it seems like it's again a bit bit suspiciously smooth the way that this apparently happens
0: <laughs>
1: yeah uh that dynasty are are we able to know the dynasty one or is that just they don't bother to record it because it's not a dynasty like do we know who has children and not have children
2: we do hear about we know that
3: Numa Numa does have a child so Romulus seems to have left no issue so that's I mean immediately you can't have a dynasty but Numa does have a daughter Pompilia who is then the mother of Ancus Marcius so we've got a little bit of early family connection going on
2: Mm -hmm. and And obviously the
3: later stuff
2: yeah, until Cecilia does have children, but depending on which story you go with, they were murdered alongside the rest of the family when Ancus Marcius took over, so that's a bit of a downer. Uh, Lucius, Taquinius Priscus, yeah, I know. <laughs> Lucius Taquinius Priscus definitely has children, but it's really difficult to figure out exactly who they are and when they're alive and what they do next because we have no idea about the timing. It doesn't really make any sense. Servius Tullius has children, but, of course, one of them ends up killing him, so I don't know how, <laughs> how we feel about that. And uh, Lucius Taquinius Superbus definitely has children, and one of them is responsible for the downfall of the whole damn show. So. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> but ironically and potentially, he's the one that has maybe has he got the most like identified children? Do we think? If we, I think to...
2: so. Yeah, I think. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think Sir has the most identified children <laughs> that we can point to.
1: Okay, so uh, actually, they, we've kind of in ourselves evened it out fairly nicely in terms of <laughs> they're all getting a badge.
2: Yeah. Aww. except for Borin so he never gets mentioned.
1: <laughs> I've got to admit, when when I was uh, reading the book, and I don't know if this was just because um, obviously when you sent it to me online, and there was the split, so I don't know if it was just that he was kind of the almost like in the the middle equivalent. But I did miss <laughs> him initially. I missed that he was one of the ones. So he got to Priscus. So I was like, hang on, how can he be the fifth? I'm, I've only onto four, and I have to go back. And say, oh, <laughs> this guy was actually a king. I just missed him completely. <laughs> so ouch probably turning then, in
3: his grave <laughs> probably then
1: when we're asking who's got that certain something the mm. star quality <laughs> that we call the Rex Factor I think that's an instant day for Ancus Marcius <laughs> because I missed I, him I,
2: I would respectfully decline on his behalf
1: <laughs> so, I mean, I such can, a shame we've yeah. got notoriety for superbus. he's not anyone's favourite cup of tea but you know he makes an impact
3: hmm he certainly leaves an impression.
1: Romulus is the founder. We do like our sort He's of got a origin ones. But you were sort yeah. of making the case that Servius Tullius is a bit of a favourite.
2: Look, I, if I had to give someone the Rex Factor, I think I would choose Servius Tullius because, as I say, he does have a real rags-to-riches story, which is hard to ignore. Possibly the son of Vulcan, God of the hearth—he's got that going for him. He rules for the longest time. He manages to introduce, apparently, a lot of reforms, which you know very very much outlast him. They they last for sometimes decades, sometimes even longer after his own death. And yeah, he seems to have been fairly popular with the people. I mean, perhaps not unexpected from a man who was once a slave and someone who appeals very much to the populace of Rome. But yeah, I definitely think Servius Filius has a bit of the rex factor going on. He certainly seems to have been able to win people over. I think there's something to be said as well for the way that
3: he manages this transition into power. It's clearly aided by Tanaquil, but it would not have been successful if he didn't have a certain something Mm. to appeal to the people himself. Yes.
2: Yeah, and the Romans, they love, they love someone who pretends they don't want power. They, 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 there's nothing that the Romans <laughs> absolutely lose their minds over than the man who says, no, no, don't give power mm. to me. And that's how Servius plays it. He's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be the king, guys. I mean, you know, maybe there is somebody else. And they're like, that's it. You, you say no more, Servius. Shut your stupid, beautiful mouth. You're going to be, you're going to be our sixth king of Rome. There's no doubt about it.
0: <laughs> How shallow. <laughs> That's amazing.
2: Yeah, and you see that idea come through in movies like Gladiator. Like the character of Maximus yeah. is very much channeling these sorts of characters like Servius Tullius and Cincinnatus, men who don't want power and therefore must be the ones to exercise power.
3: But wait, Numa didn't want it either. Stop, stop, stop (laughs) the press. I'm going back to my favorite man, but he didn't want it. If we're talking about not wanting power, Numa went out of his way to not be king. And he was forced into it by the signs And the interpretation of those signs.
2: Uh, So with Servius, he was asleep and a ring of fire appeared around his head. I mean, (laughs) that's (laughs) literally a blinking light that he has the Rex factor.
0: Intriguing. That gives us three, doesn't it? We've got Romulus... What was his name? The second one. Um, Numa. Numa. I knew it was funny.
1: It's not helping, Um, of course.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um... Third one? Who's that? Who's the third one we were just talking about? T- S- uh, service. 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 Yeah. So that's not bad, is it? Yeah. Three out
1: of seven slash eight. It <laughs> <laughs> also actually gives me a little clue maybe then for him, because the only one that I've got, I've got a little quote for Numa from the book that I wrote down, because I thought, oh, that's quite on point for us, which says, we know he had a certain je ne sais quoi. We're going to stop searching for the new king of the moment. So d- does that give any clue as to sort of in terms of the writing of the book, as to who's written which, uh, yeah.
3: which bits, I,
2: I think uh, I think you're up could, on something here.
3: Yeah, who could say?
2: <laughs> but we'll we'll take that secret to our graves.
1: <laughs> I felt like it would make a, it could make for quite a good mini series. The the Kings of Rome.
3: Oh, it's, look! It's I'm nicely so glad contained. you've mentioned this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a limited series. We're thinking HBO. Uh, as our priority just because of the quality of the production yeah um, but happy to take Netflix if
0: they're interested so.
2: <laughs> yeah we are failing offers
0: <laughs> it really does though doesn't it, like, that, um, it, it it's a shoe in for uh, a bit Rome everyone loves that but yeah it's a bit you don't un- You d- is unknown oh straight oh. in loads of
2: yeah. Amazingly, yeah, amazingly, I think people have uh, been slightly turned off the early period of Rome just because um, some people, and I mean, certainly not anybody here, think it's a bit dark.
0: <laughs> 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 but I suppose it would probably be um, too, too gory, wouldn't it? Maybe you've got something there that it's just too dark.
3: You know, you can have your bright moments. <laughs> Does it, though? Does like...
2: <laughs> Netflix, don't listen to Ali. Don't listen
3: to Ali. Contact us. (laughs) I mean, obviously the trouble with history when it comes down to it is that the good stories don't really make it into the source material. Because when everybody's having a good time, it's just a one sentence write off and you're done. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. But you do, you do get some, there are some lighter moments. I mean, what about when, you know, Tanaquil and Tarquinius are making their way to Rome and the eagle steals his hat and then gives it back again. Like, and she's like, hey, I think this is a good sign. It's a nice moment. <laughs> a happy <laughs> moment.
0: <laughs> That's in the trailer.
2: <laughs> There's nothing like eagles stealing people's hats to get, you know, an audience mm. for an HBO show.
1: Well, thanks so much to uh, both of you for coming on and uh, for talking to us.
2: Oh, more than fine. I know we're so excited to talk to you guys after all these years. We've been very long-time listeners. You're one of the first podcasts we ever listened to, and obviously took some inspiration from. So it's a real honour to be a guest on the Rex Factor. And we also, out of deference to you, made sure we did not call our book
0: the Rex, <laughs> <laughs> the Rex Factor. <laughs> Can you imagine the scandal? <laughs> <laughs> oh great so you got the book have you g man
1: uh well no i've got um a digital version of it all right well that's uh, that's a that's a pertinent question how can people get hold of the book
3: ah an excellent question so it can be ordered through the publisher's website the publisher is called highlands press if you search for the title rex the seven kings of rome Whack that into Google; that usually works as well. Or you could go to the Partial Historian's website, where we'd have details about how you can get it as well, and a link to the publisher, which makes it even easier.
1: <laughs> and of course, then you can also check out if you haven't done already the Partial Historian's podcast.
3: Oh yes, absolutely. We would recommend it. <laughs> yeah, <we're first>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with the book, and uh, do you do you have anything else planned for the the tenth anniversary? Have you got any other plans, or you just think the book's enough for uh, one <laughs> thing to do this year?
3: Yeah, it's. A, I think our next jaunt, I think we'd like to go to Rome together. Oh, I think that would yeah. be, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to make that this year, but I think that um, will be, be great. that will be something to plan for.
0: Yeah.
1: Lovely having you on. And, uh, thank you so thank much. You thank
3: Thanks, you.
1: Thank Bye. Bye. An
3: absolute pleasure. Bye.
1: So that was the Partial Historians on the Seven Kings of Rome. Let us know what you thought about all of that. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email, rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use or donate monthly, join the Privy Council and get access to loads of uh, bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Kate Schumer, Elizabeth Montgomery, Jenny Begant, Morgan Shepherd, Lucy Whiteley, Dana Morland, Dark Lady Mitchell, Ben Fielding, Richard Bennett, Miranda Casagran, Ashley Kate, Bex Morgan, Rugg, Brian McMasters, Sophia Day, Christy Collins, Sarah L Claire Southworth, Maggie Kempner, Nicole Frost, Anna Feliziani, Molly Cowling, Jane Evans, Catherine Colchetta, and Kia Harper.
0: Welcome in. I hope you join in the Discord uh, where we chat, and everyone is nice.
1: So that is all from us today. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview. And that is us in terms of our interviews for this mini-series break. So our next uh, main episode will be uh, a messages and previews episode, which will include a clip from our forthcoming special episode for patrons or for those who want to buy the episode, which will be on Catherine de Medici. Uh, after that, we will be starting our next mini-series, which is uh, predominantly on the Stuart consorts. albeit we're going to be starting with Philip II of Spain, whose husband to uh, Mary Tudor. Also, of course, just a reminder that we are doing a live show on the 17th of June at the Ludlow Festival, so if you are able to, please do book your tickets. Come along and see us live in the flesh.
0: That's not long. That's very soon. Book your tickets now.
1: (laughs) Uh, Until then, though, it's goodbye.
0: Bye.